Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Sarah Terry, director of a documentary called A Decent Home. The film addresses urgent issues of class and economic inequality through the lives of mobile home park residents who can't afford housing anywhere else. The film asks, who are we becoming as Americans? as private equity firms and wealthy investors buy up parks, making sky-high returns on their investments while squeezing every last penny out of the mobile home owners who lack rights and protections under local and state laws. Here's the film's trailer. A mobile home is not a second-class house. A mobile home is my home. It's where we put our energy, our family, our history, our everyday memories. Vivíamos en el carro en la troca. Nosotros queríamos un hogar y lo obtuvimos. Everybody's dream is to have a place that they can call their own. Kind of makes me have a lump in my throat to feel how grateful I am to be trailer trash. <laughs> The homes of some of the poorest people in America are getting snapped up by some of the richest people in America. And luckily, there have been no problems whatsoever. <laughs> Except I'm obviously kidding, it's going terribly. I found a letter taped to my door that said our rent would be increasing by 63%. My whole world just kind of came crashing down. Estamos a punto de perder nuestro hogar. Mobile home dwellers own their homes, but don't own the land underneath it. So investors have been snatching those parks up and either tearing them down or ratcheting up rent and fees. We didn't have them hostage if they weren't stuck in those homes in, the, in those mobile home lots. It'd be a whole different picture. It's almost like, okay, what's the absolute last vestige of the American dream that we can squash? I may be forced to leave everything, even though I own my home. We could end up in the street a year from now. We don't really know. I mean, how many jobs can we work? They're faced with eviction, losing their homes. Your inaction today is our displacement tomorrow. Sean, do you know how much money you're going to get for the park? Anybody who could say, there's people that I'm going to make homeless just so I can have more money. And it's a very selfish, greedy, evil person in my eyes. You could choose to stay with a mobile home park and just make less money. Uh, that, is, that is entirely true. Taking as much as you can to all be damned the consequences uh, is, is something our government likes sanctions and, and, and facilitates. I don't care who you are, and I have nothing to say to you. Don't come, and don't come to my park. The scope of our problem is significant. We need people to speak up. I've never done anything like this before in my life. We don't want people to forget that we're here and what they're doing. We're not going to take that lying down. We're just not going to. When we win, then you sleep. Nobody can stay on the sidelines anymore. This is really about people getting in the fight. We may be the David to their Goliath, but um, we all know who won that in the end. We have to believe that if we act, something is possible. I'm fighting to the end. And all around me, a voice was The American dream and mobile home parks might be the only place where the candle is still lit. This land was made for you and me.
A Decent Home will be broadcast beginning on March the 16th on PBS as part of the America Reframe series. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow, subscribe, and share. And now on to my conversation with Sarah Terry. Hello, Sarah Terry. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you so much. It's good to be speaking with you and speaking with you about your film called A Decent Home, which will be running on PBS uh, as part of the America Reframed series on March the 16th. And yeah. we'll make sure that uh, all those program notes are included in the in the notes for the episode of this podcast. But the, uh, the film centers around uh, the issue of housing for people who live on the lower end of the uh, economic scale and, mm. and particularly or specifically people who are living in mobile homes homes or trailer parks. Tell me in about the, in the old language. Yes, or trailer, exactly. Yes. But most people still think of them as yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And it was interesting in your film to uh, to find out how that term was arrived at, because they did start as trailers. Um, it, they were in, once upon a time mobile. Yes, indeed. And yes. Uh, that lasted for, I don't know, 50 years or so. And then in the post World War II era, as you know, Levitt towns happened as the manufacturer of mobile homes wanted them to be quote unquote more respectable mm -hmm. they started creating mobile home parks or trailer mm -hmm. parks trailer courts um and then began shifting the languaging uh, uh, eventually to manufactured housing i always say uh mobile homes mobile home parks because like you know the average american you say you know manufactured housing and they aren't going to know what we're talking about right. and it's really important to understand we're talking about the largest form of unsubsidized affordable housing in the United States. And it's a type of housing and a type of people that sadly you can still say things like trailer trash and nobody will call you out on it. It's like the last pejorative we can make about a group of people mm -hmm. and it's entirely class-based and it's ignorant. So yeah, sorry, that's my soapbox. There's a great story in the film there too, as you know, cause you've seen it. <laughs> I have and, and um, soapboxes are welcome. When you look at, or when you think about the issue of uh, economic inequality, um, you can come at it from so many different angles. Why did you decide to use this particular story, this particular sort of phenomenon uh, as the microcosm through which you wanted to tell uh, at least one part of that story? Well, my background is in journalism. I'm all, you know, I find ideas by reading or looking around and I had not, I'd done two, my first two films I did pretty close together. It had been several years since I'd done one and I, somebody asked me what I was going to do next. And I said, I don't have an idea. And the, um, but the next morning I was reading an article in the guardian and it was about a man named Frank Rolfe, who um, was one of the largest owners of uh, mobile home parks in the United States. And he runs something called mobile home university. 
right. where he teaches people how to buy and sell parks at the greatest profit and the least amount of, you know, to, very business oriented model, not the model it has historically been of mom and pops. But the kicker in that article for me is as outrageous as Frank Rolf can be was this little sub note. This was in 2015. And it said the Carlisle group has started to buy mobile home parks and the world of private equity is watching. Right. I have for a long time believed that the biggest issue we face in the world is the wealth gap and that kind of inequity. I think that climate change is the face of greed. I think racial injustice is the face of greed. You know, it all centers on that incredible um, disparity where, where so much wealth is concentrated in the hands of so few people. Mm -hmm. And when I read the Carlisle group was buying them, like these are the wealthiest of the wealthy buying up housing for people on the lowest rung of, you know, what we call the American dream. I was like, wait a minute here. Who are we becoming as Americans? If that's what we're doing in the housing market, you know, I just thought it was crazy. And and it's only gotten crazier because private equity has been buying up housing throughout the marketplace. You mm -hmm. know, so I, it was just a I mean, it's so funny to look back at 2015 when I actually still had to in when I wrote grant proposals, I wrote the underreported affordable housing crisis because nobody was talking about it. I mean, it's catching up. You know, it's really urgent. I think people understand it and they understand things like I believe the numbers are one in five home sales last year uh, were bought by private equity. Yeah, um, I think not, I, I, I think higher. it actually may have been higher than that. I think, I think it, it might it was have been two. one in three. It could be one in three or two in five or whatever it is, but it's like that's private equity, that's corporations, that's people with money buying a fundamental human need. I mean, we all get really deeply that if you don't have a home, no matter how small, if you don't have a place to protect you from the elements and to sleep at night, you're not going to be able to function as part of your community. And if you're not functioning as part of your community, you you have an unhealthy community. I mean, it's just, it's these basic human values as opposed to treating homes like they're a commodity to be bought and sold to the highest bidder. That is the incredible danger we're facing right now in our in our culture, in our society. It is reshaping us like a tsunami, almost without people noticing. And here you have people who live in mobile home parks. To me, they were like the canaries in the coal mine. It was happening there first. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, you know, it, Everybody seems to know somebody as I started working on the film. Oh, my aunt lived in a mobile home park and loved it. Or my parents lived there right out of college. My dad lived there as a GI. You know, it's just everybody knows somebody. But we somehow it's just the 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 things that have won in popular culture's imagination are the tropes of dead end, devastation, poverty, drugs, hurricanes. And it's such a disservice to to these people in these homes. So that's, I don't know, I kind of like have this, like, you know, I had an editor one time who told me like, I ride a white horse, you know? So it just like, I get, I get up in arms about things like this. And I, I, I wanted with the film, I knew I could with the film, make the viewer fall in love with yeah. um, the people in the parks. And so the, your and film, your film draws an important distinction uh, between the fact that 
the folks that you profile, while they may own yeah. own their mobile home, mm-hmm. they do not own the land upon which that mobile home is built or sits. Can you tell imagine? me why that's an important <laughs> distinction? Well, it's like you own your. Okay, so let's tackle the word you use mobile, and I could hear you kind of putting it in in, in quotation marks. They're not mobile. You know, they mobile homes do not exist. Maybe an RV is like the modern day version of like a mobile home. They aren't on wheels. They are put they are delivered from from manufacturers on big trucks into parks and and placed on land. There are no wheels. It costs yeah, you referenced earlier. Um, uh, you referenced Levitt towns earlier. And just for listeners who aren't familiar with what that's all about was that's uh, that began after World War Two in the suburbs of Long Island, where this guy yeah. named Levitt decided that they were going to they literally you could buy what was called a kit house. Yeah. You could buy it from Sears and Roebuck yeah. for probably about twenty thousand dollars and all of the makings of a home came and and those homes were every bit as mobile as the ones that are uh being occupied by the folks in your film right but let's get back to talking about why ownership of the land is important right because a levittown you know homeowner owned the land they lived on correct a mobile home park essentially what private equity understood as they looked at this form of the housing market was Mm -hmm. the incredible vulnerability because that land could be bought and sold out from under people who live there. Rents were low. This was a mom and pop business. Nobody was out there. People were there just to make a decent living, you know, pay a decent rent. But private equity understood with housing prices going up, with everything else rising and the scarcity of affordable housing, they started going in and buying the parks and jacking up what's called lot rent because you own your home, but you rent the land you live on. Mm-hmm. There is no more vulnerable phone form of home ownership in the United States than that, because somebody can come in and keep raising your lot rent. And um, I, I heard Frank Rolf in Mobile Home University tell people there, he's like, yeah, raise it 25 bucks a month because I guarantee you people aren't going to, you know, they're not going to move. They're going to go down to the local Walmart and, you know, work for a couple more hours. I mean, that, that was his, those were his words. It's, so they, they could keep leveraging, raising those rents. And in most places, very, almost everywhere in the United States, there are no protections for people who live in mobile home parks. So the rent can be raised as many times a year and buy as much as um, the park owner wants. And there's in many places something called no cause evictions, which means that you can be kicked out, uh, like say in 72 hours. And that, and you have to be able to move your home with you to be able to keep it. Mm-hmm. So you have to find a way, you have to find a place to take it. You've got to find the thousands of dollars. And these are for people, many of them living on limited income, social security, or f- young families working two and three jobs, disabled veterans. You know, these are the people like this is home for them. I love mobile homes. I mean, I, I would say I'd, I would love to find a mobile home park where I could like just set up and invite all my artist friends and we could all share a community but right. still have our private places, you know? Yeah. You mentioned Frank Rolf and his impact communities, you know, on, on any given weekend all across the country, there are hotel room 
um, there are there are hotel ballrooms that are filled with people running one seminar or another. And many of yeah. them are to learn over the weekend how to become a real estate investor. That's nothing new. And yeah. his angle is um, selling this course to people who want to uh, acquire mobile home parks uh, yeah. and, you know, make money from them. And a really um, compelling, I guess, quote that I, I pulled from that scene. He said, you know, you don't want to know the names of the people you're renting the land to. No, you, Why would your, that be? Because he said it. I mean, it was just such a he because you, they're not your friends. You know, you, you don't have a relationship with them. You rent them land. That is right. all you do. He also tells people cut down all the trees empty the swimming pools. He tells them to completely like eliminate anything but the essential services that they're required to um, supply, like utility lines or whatever. So he's basically advising that you, 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 you're really buying land that just happens to have mobile homes on them. It happens to be uh, the place where people live. Yeah. And essentially you want to flip the land (laughs) if necessary. So it's not flipping. It's hanging on because you can drive up until maybe you've soaked all the in the private equity way until you've soaked all the money you can from it. Carlisle Group is actually getting out of mobile home parks now because they've taken they've gotten the cream of the crop. But um, Frank would just like say, here's how to make the most money from it. He's like, Mm -hmm. don't let it go because it's a cash cow. Mm-hmm. It, you have virtually the industry tries to say, oh, but we ha- it's so expensive to maintain these parks. You know, we have to do so many things. I've heard this at legislative hearings and things. They don't. You know, it's if I mean, they may have to replace sewage lines after 50 years or something, but there are virtually no infrastructure costs in maintaining a mobile home park, Pop, snow, plowing the roads in, you know, in snow or something. Mm-hmm. But the cost Unlike, say, if you owned an apartment building, right, you would be responsible for fixing any interior things like, you know, the plumbing goes bad. There's a leak. There's a problem. There's damage to a wall. There's a fire. You it's all on you. Maintain the roof in a mobile home park. It's the it's the homeowners Mm -hmm. who do all the maintenance work. They're they're responsible for everything, you know, that happens to their home. That is not the cost of the of the landowner. Yeah, your film points out that there are 46,500 mobile uh, home parks in the United States. What's the uh, sort of geographic dispersal of those? So it's kind of just to point out, it's kind of a squishy number. Nobody seems to have the exact. It's like 45 to 50 ish. So Mm -hmm. that was I landed on that, I think, from the Census Bureau. But um, South Carolina has more um, mobile homes than uh, any other uh, state in the country. I think 20 percent of their housing stock is mobile homes. You'll find I mean, you'll find parks all over the place. There are mobile home parks in not just the, the ones that. Hollywood people live in at Malibu Beach, but there are mobile home parks throughout Los Angeles County and Orange mm-hmm. County. They're hidden away in different places there. Um, sometimes people think, that, oh, they're rural. Mobile homes might be rural, like somebody in a rural place might have a mobile home on their property, but parks right. tended to have been placed on the outskirts of urban areas where nobody wanted to go. And part of the problem right now is as land values are going up and as cities are expanding, the places where those parks are, are turning out to be you know quite valuable pieces of property. Yeah. You, you speak with uh, one woman in particular whose mobile home from her backyard, she's literally looking at Google's headquarters. Yeah. 
Yeah, there is a park right next door to Google headquarters. Um, it's in Mountain View, California. It, it's one of uh, there's there's four parks in the film. Two of them have long storylines. Two of them are just these little I call them like satellite scenes and they, mm-hmm. they're they there to, to land you for a reason. And the park next door to Google headquarters is in the first act of the film because I want to say to you as the viewer, oh, you think, you know what a mobile home park is and you think you know who lives there well check out this park because google employees live in this mobile home park because they cannot afford to live in silicon valley young families live here whose parents are working at any one of the other tech companies around it's a um it's a way of turning stereotypes on its head right um so that park is sort of in that space to kind of blow your mind and And, to people who love it yeah that that comes across that that certainly comes across and it also comes across very clearly that um as you pointed out a little bit earlier these these mobile home neighborhoods communities they're hmm. they're that's exactly what they are they're it's all a matter of scale yeah. and then once you get inside it's a family living with a living room and a kitchen and a couple of bedrooms and a bathroom. You know, once upon a time, that was sort of the template for the the American dream. That home with the white picket fence yep. was quite often a similar footprint, but but it had a, but at a, a a larger size. So yep. the mobile oh home God. is a reduced is a reduced version of that. You the film does spend a lot of time uh, focusing on the the story around uh, Denver Meadows. Yes. Uh, tell us about that story and and how that particular story um, uh, rang out for you as being emblematic of this phenomenon as a whole. I was trying to find a park, you know, as a filmmaker where I could follow a beginning, middle and end. You know, I had I'd found parks that had already been purchased or parks that, you know, were not in danger of being purchased. Like, where's that story? And uh, one of the main players, national players in this field had just received. I was interviewing the uh, director and uh, they had just received an email from a housing activist in uh, Aurora, Colorado. That's where Denver Meadows uh, was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she said, you know, we're trying to save this land. Uh, Can you help us? And um, Denver Meadows was. on a piece of property that had once been the very outskirts sort of of a metro area. Um, and the residents were trying to buy the park uh, to be able to stay there. It was a mainly Hispanic uh, community. Um, again, young families, people working two and three jobs to be able to afford to be there. And uh, the owner of the park had uh, wanted to close the park and sell it. He, there was a, it's a, a long story about the ins and outs of it, but um the residents were able to get a national nonprofit to make a $20 million offer Mm -hmm. to this owner for the land. Um, And he refused to sell and he went ahead and he closed the park. And during this fight, Colorado, Colorado used to be one of the worst States in the country in terms of protections for park residents. Yep. Because of those residents, because of this, these Spanish speaking people who showed up at every city council meeting, you know, for like three years saying, what are you doing? How can you help us? Laws were passed that have made Colorado one of the best states in the country now. And I hold up Aurora just sits within the film because there's 
you know, you meet people, there's the heartbreak of, of this sort of greedy, um, landowner and you see a rising up at the civic level in act three of the film, you see some pretty powerful local activism, which was something I needed to be in the film to like, say to people, you can do something. It Mm -hmm. looks like this, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you get involved, you run for office, you do these things. So, um, Denver Meadows, wasn't in danger of being bought by a private equity firm, but it was an example of the forces of greed. And the heartbreak of Denver Meadows is that the park was closed in 2019. Sorry, that's a spoiler from the film, but um, the land is still unsold. The land still sits empty. So nobody bested the offer of 20 million or has the owner decided that he wants to wait it out? No, he nobody nobody came up with his selling price, which I believe was for a while was forty five or forty eight million. Right, and it's down to the point now where the city of Aurora is looking at maybe they should take that land over. This it's this little vulnerable piece of property that I said used to be on the edge of nowhere, and then a light rail line came in, and high end retail came in, and a a four billion dollar medical campus came in. So it just threatened this space you know it, and, it, and if i'm not mistaken this was the instance where that land would have to have been rezoned for yes. for, for a different it, for a different type of use there was a battle over rezoning there mm-hmm. was a lot there's a lot of suggestion of you know deals being made mm-hmm. in the film um and it, it which seems pretty clear but it's it was uh Yeah, it was just the vulnerability of that population and the incredible tenacity they expressed in fighting and taking care of each other. And they became community leaders. They became community. People came out of that park as, you know, community organizers in other places. So Mm -hmm. it's a it's a mighty story to me. In every time I'm in Colorado and I talk to other park residents, I'm like, your story actually begins, you know, with the story of Denver Meadows. You need to know what they did. So if I'm a real estate investor or if I'm running a private equity fund, what is going to make uh, a uh, a mobile home park uh, attractive to me? Low cost of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a there's a scene in the film where you see what one private equity firm that's bought a park in Iowa actually listed on their website um, about what what made it so valuable cash flow from like day one. They were going in and buying a well-maintained park and they knew and they immediately raised the lot rents. They um, raised them by 60 percent. So just imagine you might not think raising lot rent from 200 you know, to four hundred dollars is a huge thing for maybe for some people. But think about your mortgage payment if it was raised sixty percent. Sure. That's what was happening. So right. it's a vulnerable population. Um, there are no laws really regulating what you can do as a business on that land. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tight, affordable housing marketplace. And again, you buy this cash cow without having to put very much money into it. Mm-hmm. So, and you can raise the money. It's a, it's that classic. It's a, it's a private equity looks for vacuums of capital. You know, it's like, where can we make money? Right. That was just like an accident waiting to happen. And at one point, somebody in the, at one point, somebody in the film says, well, that's just how capitalism works. How do you respond to that? Well, that was me. I said it. It was really I, you know, because there's we we have two what we call the women we call our battling grandmothers in the film. And one of them is Candy Evans in um, 
North Liberty, Iowa. And she was expressing this kind of outrage over what this private equity firm, because her park was bought by a private equity firm, Haven Park Capital out of Utah. And um, she talked about how they'd raised the rents of what they'd done. And so in just being a bit of a devil's advocate in that moment, I said, well, some people, you know, well, some people say that's just how capitalism works and which is true, right? Like you make money. The, you, the, the reason the bad guys, quote unquote, in the film are so unapologetic about what they do is they're doing what we say they should do. Make more money. You're a capitalist. So I posed that question to Candy and she just looks dead into the camera and she has the answer. I think, you know, that we all should believe in. She said, treating people fairly is how life works. Yeah. That's the heart of it for me. That sure. what greater grand slam on the idea that we are motivated by greed and that we live for greed. That that I mean, this current era of gilded wealth began with Milton Friedman's, you know, infamous the economist Milton Friedman's infamous article in the New York Times magazine in which he said the only social responsibility of a corporation is to make more money for its shareholders. We are now at the extreme tipping point of that through trickle down economics, through neoliberalism. I mean, Republicans and Democrats alike, we are reaching the tipping point of a philosophy that said the market will fix everything. It's like, <laughs> what a joke. You know, look at the numbers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did uh, this subject matter and the subject matter of your other documentaries, um, what was it about? about them uh, that really struck a chord with you? You know, you're, you're, as you said, your background is in journalism. I know you're also an accomplished photographer. You were the cinematographer on your, on, on this particular film. So I, I, is it, is it a reach to say that there's a degree of activism along with your artist or your uh, artistic inclinations? I think there's a degree of, social justice. I mean, this film is the first time I have, I'm, I narrate, uh, there's voiceover from me and I'm not telling you what's happening as much as I'm stopping to reflect. I really wanted to reflect on things. A lot of the issues of greed that are in the film. I've never done that in my life as a journalist or a storyteller. Um, I, I do understand that. I hope my work is in conversation is part of creating change. I'm not the person who wants to, I mean, even with this film, we're supporting the work of other people. You know, I don't want to be leading that charge, but I do want to be having the conversation that says, who are we becoming as Americans? And I think that's my first film was set in Sierra Leone. My second film is about, you know, singer songwriters, the subculture of singer songwriters in America. I'm very, very drawn to the stories that help us define what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And secondarily, what the role of community is in helping us define that humanity. So it's, I mean, I was a general assignment reporter for many years, you know, in the eighties and nineties. So I, you know, it, I wrote on many things, but I think that's always been this driving space for me. What does it mean to be human? How should we treat each other? You know, what makes a healthy society, a healthy community? You know, how do, do, do I really want to think that greed is what it means to be human? 
You know, sure. what is, is like, like stop and think about it, people. Let's talk about this. And for me, that's the film's space. I'm hoping. And in the next round, we had a huge first year of impact with the film as, as it was out on the festival circuit or working at the community level. And I'm hoping right now I'm waiting to find out if I'm getting a grant to take the film to business schools, law schools, and architecture schools. Mm-hmm. Because the housing activists that I work with, they got their hands full. You know, they're just fighting those frontline battles right now on funding and protecting parks. I'm, as a storyteller, super interested in the people who will be the primary influencers of narratives in the future. And Mm -hmm. that includes business schools. Hello. I mean, Harvard is now has questions now that question the ethics of capitalism. You know, law schools, which is about the laws that protect housing and who we protect and our corporations, people, all of that. And then architecture schools in terms of valuing this form of housing itself. There are, there's a small group of architects working in this space doing very cool things. So I think those people are storytellers. And as a storyteller, I want to reach them with the film and say, what are you going to do? You know, you have the power to rewrite the, you know, the, the narrative of greed that we've lived in in this country, you know, for the past 70, the past 50 years. Um, yeah. And, and so many, in so many instances, as I, as I said, your, your, your film serves as a, um, as a compelling microcosm for this, you know, for this yeah. topic. Yeah. And in so many instances, one does get the feeling that, People feel powerless really against the forces of a a somewhat predatory economy. And they almost and and I'm uh, speculating here, obviously, but there's almost a feeling where, well, you know, I have to charge X amount for this because these other entities are being greedy toward me and charging me X amount. So if everybody is extracting the, the, you know, what the, the highest possible rate that the market will bear, whether it's to, you know, people living on their land or people they're renting apartments from, or people they're providing healthcare insurance to, or uh, health insurance to, or, or right on down the line, it becomes this very, you know, uh, circular economic hunger games in, in, in a sense. And in it's um, it does get to the very root of how is a society maintained? How is community maintained if everybody is forced to play by those rules? Because those people that were living in those mobile homes for all those years, there were a number of people that have been in those mobile homes for 20 plus years that you mm-hmm. interview in your film. Mm-hmm. They're they're paying they're paying to live in the home. They paid for the home. They to the best of their ability, they're contributing to society. All of that can go away if they're suddenly homeless. And then you quite often hear from the same free market forces that say, "Well, don't raise my taxes because I'm not paying for any more social services for these people that are on the street." That's a packed question with a lot of good points. And, and I think a lot of the frustration. That was that my lot, soapbox. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We're, soapboxes are good, but I think, you know, you're reflecting a frustration. It's like, but I have to do this. Otherwise I get screwed. And here's how we become things in society. It's because of the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. It's the stories we tell ourselves about what's of value. And those rotate through our culture in so many ways. 
they rotate in one way with a New York Times magazine article by Milton Friedman, you know, who essentially says greed is good. That reasoning kind of reaches a crazy moment in fictionalized Hollywood where Gordon Gecko in Wall Street you know, says greed is good. And in Q and A's with the film, I would say to people, you can start to change a narrative. We can start to say, no, you know what? Greed isn't good. I mean, I would often refer to, I was growing up, um, I was in the at, at a point in the 80s where the slogan was whoever has the most things when they die wins. Yeah, whoever, whoever dies that. with the most toys wins. Wins. So and that was like people bought. I mean, there was so much consumers in the 80s. And yet today, like of the age I was then, people that age now, they want to they want to live lives of experience, not of acquisition. Mm-hmm. So the narratives change and and we become what we hold up. So it's we it's just telling new stories. It's demanding new stories. It's being I mean, part of the we're talking with people writing scripts in Hollywood, you know, about like, why are you portraying like mobile homes as dead end places? I mean, it's all it's the stories and questioning. You know, it's a it's a it's on us to learn the the visual and emotional and cultural literacy that says that's just a story you're telling me. I don't have to believe it. Mm. I can hold up something else and communities are holding things up. I mean, the state of Colorado went from being one of the worst states in the country for protections for park residents to now being one of the best. And how did that happen? The story of people like the residents of Denver Meadows saying, no, that's not accurate. You know, no, it's not fair. It's not right. This is what home looks like and you need to protect it. So it's I'm I'm I mean, duh, I'm a storyteller, so I'm a big believer in. But I, you know, I think of newspaper I mean, my background is journalism. I'm, I believe, you know, really good journalists are trained to be objective or, you know, like you're not when you're not working for a news organization that's based on a partisan point of view or something. But you there's 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 ways to 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 be talking about this. And there's and we we've become numb, you know, in this polarized world where it's so easy to manipulate and divide and, and mesmerize thinking. It's so important for storytellers to stand up and tell a different story because we do become what we hold up. And I think we can become something other than, than greed. I really do. And I think I know I think people who live in mobile home parks, they understand the answer to the question, how much is enough? You know, they don't need six houses and 10 cars and three trips around the world. They they may not always have enough. They may not always be able to pay their bills, but they know how much enough is a roof over their heads, school for their children and a healthy community. And I think we need to sort of get on bended knee um, to people that we have considered as not having the answers and ask them, you know, how much is enough? Well, Sarah Terry, thank you for your time and chatting with us about your film, A Decent Home. Uh, It will be airing on PBS as part of the America Reframe series on March the 16th. And if people want to find out more about the film and more about you, where's the best place they can go? 
A decent home film.com is our website with lots of great information and, you know, other, other things there, that would be the best. And I, I have to thank you for all my soapbox opportunity moments today. I haven't done an interview for a while. So you, you caught me all revved up and ready to uh, fly. You had a great questions and I appreciate your, mm, you know, your own attention and concern um, to these narratives that really came through in your questions. So thank you. Well, that's great. It's been it's been uh, a pleasure speaking with about this and good luck once it's out in the world with the uh, the impact campaign. And uh, we'll be following this story as we move forward. Thank you so much.